I'm going to put one to start, and that is language and translation. Because I think everybody probably wants to know what I just said. <laughs> but let's just extend that a little bit and just imagine what it was like for all those people who lived here when they said all the things and no one was listening or understanding. So Bruce starts in an introduction about these couple of young guys who leave Melbourne and go up to the Murray River and some of the local men are waving their hands in the air and shouting. It's reported to be Kamarapunga and they've gone and interpreted that as these people want us to take their land. <laughs> so language you know, if we, if we don't have that, so who's actually read Bill Gamage? That's a goodly number of people. I can highly recommend it. It's an amazing book. And who's read Bruce Pascoe? That's great. So you'll know what Bruce does, and he takes those those. Uh, records, the um, explorers and early settlers, and the words that they wrote and then recreates the landscape. Bill Gamish does that as an academic, and he takes it that little bit further by, we've got the, the cover is Joseph Lysett, and we saw that this morning on the, on the big screen, Charlie Massey put it up there, and that pictorial rec representation about the landscape, landscape design, when I went to school, that was sort of like, we weren't meant to believe that, that, that there was something wrong with the, the artist's impression, but they were the photographers of their day. Um, Colin, I always said when, when they said they didn't know how to draw Native vegetation. Yeah. I said, yeah, maybe they didn't know how to draw gum leaves in texture, but they weren't lying about the structure of the landscape. Mm. That's right, yeah. So, just some definitions to begin with. So, I'm using Bill Gavage's um, use of the term 1788 to mean the people and the the, the, way the, the way the country was, the way Australia was in, before the invasion. Um, he talks about the law. I'm going to use the language of the people that I've worked with, and that's Chukupa. So maybe we'll have our first lesson in language. Chukupa. 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 And I'm going to use the word for people, uh, Aboriginal people. But that's everybody, people. Arnangu. Arnangu. Okay. So, I'm going to read a little bit of a quote from Bill Gambit. So, this is what he says about his book. It rests on three facts about 1788. Number one, unlike the Britain of most early observers, about 70% of Australia's plants need or tolerate fire. Knowing which plants welcome fire and when and how much was critical to managing land. Plants could then be burnt 
and not burnt in patterns so that post-fire regeneration could situate and move grazing animals predictably, predictably by selectively locating the feed and shelter they preferred. Two other small points. Grazing animals could be shepherded in this way because apart from humans, they had no serious predators. Only in Australia was this so. Mm. The third one. There was no wilderness. The law, Tukupa, an ecological philosophy enforced by religious sanction, compelled people to care for all their country. People lived and died to ensure this. How does that fit with your world view of Australia in 1788? <laughs> I mean, is that a contentious, are they contentious claims? I guess. Well, David's thinking about that. The, um, I've got a definition of wilderness from the National Parks uh, just up in Morton, Butterway National Park. This land has been important to humans over many thousands of years and has been used in many ways over this time. Even after human interaction, some areas are still close to their natural state. These special places have been declared wilderness so that the natural process of evolution can continue over larger areas ensuring biodiversity is conserved for our future. Mm. So we've got a couple of opposing principles. Uh, Sharma, in his book Landscape and Memory, talks about two competing... I don't think that's working, is it? It is working. It is working. Um, Ah, oh, right, is that better? Uh, talks about two competing views of nature uh, of uh, wilderness as being the ancestral paradise and of wilderness being the horrid uh, red in tooth and claw uh, opposite to humanity's civilization. And those two views actually come out of uh, urban origins of our Western civilization in uh, um, the Western tradition uh, from Greco-Roman culture. Mm. And he traces the lineage of those two stories, repeating themselves right into the modern era. And a lot of in modern environmentalism has uh, thrown away the negative issue and gain the positive issue of nature as the pristine paradise without people. He points out that peasant peoples, people connected to land, never had that segregated view. Um, and of course, in coming here, the notion of wilderness was actually part of terra nullius to make the claim that Aboriginal people did not use the land because under English common law, the use of the land in the absence of land title gave people rights to land. Mm. Unfortunately, the view that I've always had, actually long before reading 
uh, Bill Gamich or Bruce Pascoe was that ecologists in this country were still attached in terra nullius. While acknowledging that Aboriginal people used and modified the land, the scope of that was seen as quite small and that everything was where it was largely because of natural factors. And Gamage's book is a retort to the ecologists saying, we historians too have evidence. Take that. <laughs> it's a very repetitive book in some ways. It goes on and on about all these different examples. And of course, Bruce Pascoe's book is in the same lineage because it's basically mostly not from ancestral Aboriginal knowledge passed down. It's actually mostly at looking at the, the written records of explorers. Mm. So, yes, the idea that there was no wilderness is um, uh, quite clear, though there were elements in the landscape, places that were more like wilderness, um, and that's well recorded too, that they were places that are mostly not so fertile, not so um, supporting of human beings, and that they're often areas between tribal boundaries. Where I grew up in, in Western Australia, that was very much so with the Jarrah Forest between the systems on the coastal plain and the inland. Um, the, yeah, the other questions I think are um, a bit more challenging or, or, or complex, but the, um, I think the idea that Gamage introduces that this way of managing the burning pattern and regrowth of palatable grasses being a way of managing wild herds to be in places that was convenient to human use as well as being for the optimal health of the landscape um, is a, a really amazing added insight uh, for myself anyway. Yeah, and I guess the, the um, if we look at the, that, the health of the landscape and, the, and particularly the soils, I guess I know uh, Alan Savory would not want to use the tool of fire to build soils, but someone built fantastic soils, or well, the soils in Australia in 1788 were remarkably, the grasslands were di diverse and productive, and it didn't take very long for us to, uh, to uh, mess that all up. Um, is there a role for fire in our, you know, Okay, well, I, I feel a big uncertainty about that, like David Watson said. Um, I uh, am nowhere near as absolute about that as Alan Savory uh, is. Uh, uh, but the role of fire, just to say, yes, fire is uh, one of the tools. Um, how to actually use it, it's a very powerful tool. In the same way that grazing animals are a tool in managing broadacre landscapes. 
And it is important to understand that we have really those two options. Beyond that, we're talking about fossil fuel. Mm. Okay. We can't manage Australia with our hands. Not unless we get all the Chinese to come here. <laughs> so I think that's important that those two tools are what we have to work with when we're talking about the very large scale. And yes, in the near term, we can to some extent creatively use fossil fuel as well. But that's still a smaller tool, even with its power, uh, than, than grazing animals uh, and fire. Um, just wanted to segue there into uh, national parks management. Um, it seems to me when I, when I look at Reed, Reed Gamage, I think the problem with the national parks is there's no one there. We need people living there. If you want to, if you want to manage really large uh, landscapes and, and, and prevent them becoming catastrophic fire hazards, um, we, need, we need a mosaic. We need something that we need people in those places. Um, I've got a few things, I'm just putting them up. Well, don't let me stop. <laughs> okay, let's have a little comment on, on National Park. <laughs> yeah. And then we'll let's open up the, 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 the floor to questions. Yeah, there, there's so many levels in this, and it also gets into the deep history of what was here over 40,000 years, because I think there's a, a sort of a compaction that happens that because we recognise that there was a sustainable um, uh, land management system here that was probably the oldest continuous cultural land management system, that that immediately is projected back to 40,000 years or whatever. I don't accept that. Uh, I think anything that was continuous for anything more than a few thousand years is extraordinary in itself. And it looks like it's way older than that. But we have no idea how many eruptive disjunctures yeah. there were that humans learned from. Um, and one of those possibly was the, the unleashing of the fire genie that actually led to a massive loss of biodiversity. And that humans learned to work through that process and come to an accommodation of the fire genie. Even though we know that fire was part of the deep history going back tens of millions of years, there does appear that within the last 100,000 years there was this explosive shift towards more fire ecology and a huge loss of biodiversity. And that appears to overlap with when humans were here. But that doesn't mean that somehow the management that was here was, is still not the oldest continuous sustainable land use anywhere in the world. And trying to grapple with those multiple time scales, people find it very difficult to, uh, to do that. <coughs> National parks, um, oh, where do we start? Um, Mostly, most of our national parks in higher rainfall areas have got far too many trees in. What Rowan Reed was saying 
about thinning out trees. Well, the same applies on dense regrowth um, on anything from a place like this uh, through to um, our largest national parks. But how we would get a process of doing that um, that brings livelihood rewards to people is so complex. We can't even do it in a state forest. Uh, we, what we've tried to do at Friars Forest is in an eco-village with 100 hectares of native forest to actually thin out that forest to sort of try and move it back more to the state that it was in naturally. We know that from just looking at it, it doesn't by itself go back to what was here. It just burns on a periodic hot fire cycle that keeps regrowing thick eucalypt forest. We can see that over huge areas. We have no idea really how they got there in the first place, but it's certainly not going to go back to that by just leaving it. Absolutely clear. I can be certain of that almost everywhere that, I, that I've looked at. You just get a cycle of very hot fires and more dense uh, eucalypts. But um, that process is certainly something that needs to be addressed because biodiversity is being lost in our national parks. But the first place to do that makes more sense would be to get our act together with forestry in our state forests because the, the cultural conflict over managing national parks is just too big for Australians to, to grapple with. But maybe it comes the other way because there's also cultural ownership of Indigenous people is coming back into those spaces and that that may allow that to happen without necessarily expecting that current Indigenous custodians necessarily know what to do, even if they still knew what to do when their people were there. Yeah. Because everything has changed uh, in some ways that are a one-way change. Uh, in other ways, I think there's places where that husbanding might bring back those possibilities. As um, Charles was saying, I think that's more likely on farming landscapes, on grazing landscapes, and that um, attempting to experiment with um, uh, especially very cool, precisely timed burns um, might be part of that. Uh, so it is <coughs> so complex and, and One thing we need to do is be able to burn in summer. Yeah. You've got, to, you've got to choose those really cool, you know, moist times in summer. There's lots of those. But we're not allowed to burn at all. We've got a total fire ban. And that's, you know, there's, there's a biomass there. Yeah. Um, let's open up to the questions Add the conversation. Add, 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 add your voices to the conversation. Okay. So, Graham. I've got two or three questions. The question of burning in summer is uh, part of the question of burning in summer, apart from climate change, the problem is our countryside has been invaded by uh, summer grasses which dry off and they're much more of a fire hazard now than it would have been under native grass regimes. Um, that's one point. Um, um, 
another point on, on cool burning. Uh, I think we need to be looking at what I'd like to call trickle burning rather than there's no such thing as a cool burn. Um, trickle burning, where you, you burn at the right time of the year when the, the burn just trickles through the landscape and leaves lots of patches unburned, which is what they're trying to do over the Kimberley, I've seen up there in the, in the spin effects um, uh, areas up, up there. Um, enables a, a lot of the ecology to stay in place, but it, it, it also encourages some, uh, some new growth at the same time without obliterating everything in the landscape. So much of our controlled burns in our part of the world, in Victoria anyway, is just on too large a scale. Everything gets burnt, all the hollow trees get burnt, the logs get burnt afterwards. And that's uh, the third point I wanted to make is that in North America, forests are looking at what they call ecological thinning to speed up the process of getting dense regrowth forests back to a more mature state. I can make a lot of other comments about damage, but I'll catch up with you later on that. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd agree completely um, uh, with what Graham said about um, uh, burning. Burning the litter is one thing, burning the organic matter and sort of damaging the tops of trees. Yeah, what is called, well, fuel reduction burning is often involves scorching the canopy and yeah, is, is, is just done on a ridiculous scale and to achieve coverage, uh, yeah, the fires are, are too hot for, for, for almost any purpose. Robert? to make our observation or a bit of an example of um, what David was talking about there before. Where I lived in the 80s was out the back of Mullumbimby in northern New South Wales in um, pretty <coughs> isolated, we get flooded in a lot and it was in a valley called um, Upper Wilson's Creek and there were three ridges and they ran west to east kind of um, the ridges down towards kind of Byron. We saved the mountain in the middle Blackbutt Plateau because the forestry was coming in to log it. It had been virtually inaccessible and was in its natural kind of state. And then the ridge here called Coonham Range, I reckon it was um, had a fire regime in before 1788. Just from looking at the whole ecology and the forest type and things like that, I reckon the indigenous people got their access down to the coast and the grasslands there. It just my suspicion. And then Winewine State Forest up here had a public access road through to kind of Lismore and Channon. And so there was all these kind of weed species and three side-by-side -side ridges and they all have a really, really different kind of nature and ecology. And I just, it's just such an interesting example. And if you're ever up there, have a look because I'd love someone else to see what I mean. And then where I lived in Upper Wilson's Creek, I never felt at home there. I always felt like I was in, I just wasn't home and I shouldn't really be there. And I found out years later that it was only ever used by indigenous people for the young men for their initiation. So those areas, our indigenous people didn't go there. They really thick native, you know, it was, they used it for trial and challenge and stuff like that. But just observations that I find interesting. Love your comments on. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I lived in Kangaroo Valley and, and uh, lived under this great big white top box, which was a um, open forestry, and and it just probably uh, predated. It, it was there before 1788. And it just 
that's when I recognised that this was this was how people travelled through. This wasn't heavy forest, rainforest country, and this this uh, tree was a was was an open forest tree, a woodland uh, rather than a um, forest tree. Um, I, yeah, I think there's those. It's it's clear that people were were accessing um, different parts of the country and, and using it in different ways. But most of it was managed. So if there was a, an area that was set aside and wasn't burnt, that was a management strategy. Um, I was thinking back to this, <laughs> can Australia, uh, permaculture in Australia, swallow the history and recreate and generate and become Australian? I think one of the key things to recognise in that is that we don't achieve that by becoming nativist. I don't think nativism, um, in the sense that we only see value in the biodiversity of what was presumed to be on a site before 1788, and that's often a presumption anyway, uh, rather than a known fact, and that all other forms of life are con biological contamination unless we have them controlled and managed by us totally. In other words, anything that naturalises is a loss of biodiversity. That's the, the dominant nativist paradigm. And the idea that that is paying homage and connection to the land we stole and, stole and from the people we stole it from, I think is a false one. And I believe from what I understand from um, anthropologists' work in Central Australia, where you've worked, Colin, the early efforts to, why weren't Indigenous communities very engaged in land care? And land care often in Central Australia involved, you know, uh, helicopters gunning down um, uh, excess camel herds and stuff. And what those anthropologists found is that uh, that traditional people regarded these as of the land. They know they were brought by other peoples, but because they are part of nature now, they have moral status. And you can use a camel, but you can't just waste something. Um, and yet that is the toxic idea which is taken over through land care. So it's really important that as we recognise and value what was here, that we don't move into a state where we say our recognition and valuing of that is by treating what we bought as somehow evil. So it's very important from my perspective, and that's still a contentious issue in the permaculture movement, and I've been very strong on that issue, but I think there is a way that permaculture, which has ha held this thread of all of nature is a part of nature, it all has value, uh, we can maintain that what's been a dissident view in the last 20 or 30 years, but it's becoming stronger and stronger supported now by ecological science, the whole field of novel ecosystems, but that is not incompatible with uh, us uh, becoming Australian.
Now that's a sort of a big thing and I'm getting it. It was really dangerous you were asking me to look back to this. Ian, well, thanks. Um, my focus is on the last word today because uh, yeah. this is all st important stuff that we've gone through. But I, I see this situation today in the last few years as being quite different to what I've experienced previously in the sense of the ability to interact with someone like Bruce Pascoe when Uncle Wally was here. Uh, the, that's repeated in my own area in a way that I can invite uh, Auntie Julie into our permaculture course and she'll talk about local plants and she'll talk about how how someone who owns, so-called owns 50 acres can invite Aboriginal people to come onto that land. Those conversations are opening up. There was, until very recently in my experience, generally a complete block about that. So I know we've only got a short time left, but I'm interested in taking this more like a forward-looking conversation because in my experience and what I'm seeing around a lot of other places, uh, is this move, and I wrote up the word new indigenous, and that, you know, that's that. Uh, we could spend a whole day on this, of course, but, and I'm, I haven't really studied that, but I'm, I'm here and, and experiencing that in the sense that for me, I'll, you know, being born in a different country, when I go back there, I, by going away and going back, I know my country now better than I did. Mm. You know, the place I actually, as a baby, when I first smelled things and when I first put a handful of soil in my mouth, for example. Uh, I go back there and I'm reminded of that experience. My children who were born in Australia, their first smells were eucalyptus. Mm. Their first, the first soil they stuffed in their mouth was uh, a different soil, you know? And that's a discussion I would like to uh, sort of partly have now in five minutes, but partly to uh, flag for a uh, future time as well. So this is on psychology rather than land management, but it's something I've been thinking about um, ever since reading Massey's book and his account of this continual land system and sustainable land system. And somehow to me that, that makes it another there was a culture that had this system and we're a culture that stuffs things up and I actually think it might be a better narrative to start saying, yeah, even the oldest land management system in the world started by stuffing things up completely and then working out how to manage the land from there and that sort of humanises, I guess, the whole thing and makes it more relatable to our current situation and potentially gives us more hope in a way that, yep, you can stuff everything up and yet you can then still build sustainable systems. So I'm just putting that out there as a thought about a slightly different take on the narrative that we've currently got. I just want to return to um, one of the... Uh, on, our, on our grazing template, the spiritual unity of the different tribes. But one thing that we could learn is that all these things become possible when we stay in one place. We stay there for generations yeah. and we listen and we hear and feel the changes. Um, I mean, it's great to hear David Watson's story and, and 
you know, that, that, this is multi-generational properties. Uh, but we're, you know, if we're going to learn from those mistakes, we will, you know, so we, we, we want to be there. And, and that spirituality, that's what connected everything. The song lines right across, and the, and, and the, the stories, the, the, that's, that's the record. And it's an oral culture, so we don't have it written. But that's what was unifying the whole principle. Like I've worked most of my time in, with the people that live in the most marginal country in Australia. That's the bit that got left behind because nobody was interested in being there. But they didn't run away. They didn't just... They, they, that's their country. They stay because they belong. You know, they've got that responsibility and that's, that's what the Tukulpa tells them. Yeah, it's interesting, Colin, that you work in that country that where there's been the greatest continuity of that, perhaps along with Arnhem Land, because European colonisation couldn't actually work in those two environments. We in central Victoria live in the area that arguably had the greatest massive holocaust because of the largest gold region in the history of the world that just swarmed over the landscape within a couple of decades of the of the squatters moving in so and yet that recovery process that Ian was talking about of uh, um, society or being prepared to listen or uh, traditional people who have responsibility and connection still to the threads that exist in our area are both recovering those threads but also being prepared to, to say something uh, uh, about that. But in that process, I, I think there's that need to recognise that to incorporate some of these things like, yeah, we should be growing yam daisies. People should be selecting them back to the cultivated uh, ones in the same way that I said we should be doing that with oak, mm. with both the heritage of what was here and the heritage of where we came from. But ironically, we're sort of um, the starting point there, and I think that's what Bruce was saying. We're all at a starting point with recovering that process. So we shouldn't expect as as permaculture designers to advise people to put in their food gardens, yeah, you should have yams, in a practical food sense, that might not be the highest priority. But for people who are committed to, I want to work on how to bring back these things, then that those native food plants are, you know, obviously part of a multi-generational task that um, we, <laughs> collectively or somewhere people should be passionate about to work on on those things. Great. Follow up on a few comments. Follow up on a few comments. Um, in my part of the world, the uh, descendants of the Wurundjeri people are very interested in uh, uh, re recreating the traditional learning practices and they realise that they're disconnected uh, from their culture for a number of generations and they realise conditions are changing. I think there's a growing interest in uh, doing a lot of experimental work and, and creating new systems that match, uh, match the, the current conditions. So I think that's a very hopeful sign of 
So I'm sure my colleagues were interested in participating in that process. I think we've come to our time. No, we've got one more. Uh, I re I'm reminded of um, uh, a study I I read some years ago by the Insurance Council of Australia after the uh, Ash Wednesday fires in Victoria back in the 80s, and for they followed it up by the, the the fires from Canberra and the study that was done there to realise that when we're comparing fires from one generation to another and assessing the severity. Someone made a comment there that in 1939, when they had the most dreadful fire through many parts of Australia, the reason there wasn't more loss of life because very few people lived in the bush. You had occasional cattlemen's huts, occasional prospectors' huts, but most people lived in towns, and towns are quite defined, uh, more like they are in Europe. But since the Second World War, we have spread into the bush so a lot of these fire practices being tried now, one of the limitations is there's always someone's property or someone's house that has to be considered in the grand scheme of things. So the fire practice burning, the, the pattern burning that I experienced in the Spinifex country up near Jigalong in the Western Desert, uh, it was easy up there because there were hardly any settlements or houses uh, to be concerned with. But uh, as the Aboriginal elders there pointed out, um, uh, when you get close to a town, he says, you can't do a lot of these things. It's another factor to take into consideration. I just think it's important to realise that talking about permaculture today, or have to talk about the fire regime today, is a more difficult thing than it was previously, or is in remote parts. That's a Taking from the people, if the community around the past, I'm sure, be different. And one point there is an economic use. I hate to use the word. And the work of Jean Payne. Who's heard of Jean Payne? Mm. That's out of France, south of France in the 80s. South of France is a very strong Mediterranean climate. It's deep, hot summers, short, cool winters. His process produced forest thinning, selective forest thinning, methane to run his equipment, hot water for a shower, a cup of tea, and compost for the garden. I think Jean Payne should be relooked at. Yeah. Well, thank you everybody.